Uh, reading this morning is from Colossians chapter 1, and it's verses 24 to 29. So you can, uh, because anybody's on the app, but anybody in the Bible's got page 1183. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ's so powerful works in me. Thanks, Neil. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again just for the privilege that we have of being able to gather in this place, of being able to spend time consciously in your presence, to allow your Holy Spirit to come and to speak to us, to remind us of who you are and of who we are in you. Lord, all of us this morning are coming from different places, not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, and we pray that we might hear your voice speaking to each of us today. Wherever we've come from, wherever we're going back, whatever we're going back into, that we might hear your voice speaking to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as Paul said, we're continuing our series uh, going through the book of Colossians, where Paul is writing to this church in what is now modern-day Turkey, a church that he'd never been to, a church that he didn't plant. Uh, It happened through uh, one of his colleagues, called a guy called Epaphras, and uh, Paul is, is writing to this church to try and help them figure out what it means to live for Jesus where they are. It's a bit like if uh, we planted a church into, I don't know, Glasgow or Inverness or Dundee, and one of those church plants asked me to record a video message for them for a church that I'd never been to, I'd had nothing at all to do with, but, you know, five, ten years' time, we've planted a church in Glasgow or Dundee or, or Inverness or somewhere else in Scotland. That's the scenario that we have in this letter. Paul is writing to people that he's never, ever met. And what he's doing in the first chapter, at least, is setting out his credentials. He tells them how often he's thanking God for them, how often he prays for them. And then he paints this amazing picture of Jesus that we looked at last week, where from verses 15 to 23, he he just paints this incredible, unbelievable picture of who Jesus is. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. He's the 
the beginning, the head of the body, the church, he's beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. He speaks about the cross. He just lays it all out, who Jesus is and what the gospel is that this church has now believed. And at the end of chapter 1, what we call chapter 1, Paul is coming to the end of his conclusion before he's about to sort of get down to business. And he wants to remind them of two fundamental truths. Firstly, something called the hope of glory. And then secondly, the idea that his job is to present people fully mature in Christ. And those are the two things that we're going to be looking at this morning. The hope of glory. And then secondly, what it means to become fully mature in Christ. So our theme as we start is the idea of hope. And I want you to think perhaps of a situation where you have ever felt hopeless. Think of a situation in your life, and it will be different for each of us, where you have felt hopeless. I can think of four or five times in my life when I have felt hopeless. When despite my Christian faith, where despite the fact that I'm paid to pray, I felt hopeless. Can you remember where you were? Can you remember how you felt? Can you remember maybe the context? Maybe it was a doctor's waiting room. Maybe it was a hospital ward. Maybe it was by someone's bedside. Maybe it was in the workplace. Maybe it was in the context of a relationship. But you felt hopeless. One time that I have felt hopeless as a parent, apart from all the time when my kids have been teenagers, the one time I remember feeling hopeless was on an occasion. We'd been here about a year, and Josh, our eldest, was three years of age. And we'd been out for the day to Stirling Castle with Kathy's mum and stepdad. And we had a lovely day. It was a, one of those lovely spring, May Saturdays that we sometimes get occasionally once every 10 years in Scotland. And it was warm and it was beautiful and it was lovely. We had a fantastic time going around Stirling Castle. And then we got home. And on the journey home, Josh had been complaining that he was feeling quite hot. And we sort of looked across, and, and yes, he was beginning to sweat a bit. And when we got home, he started to sweat even more. And then he said, I feel really hot. Dad, I feel really hot. I feel really... And then he just went limp, completely limp. And he passed out. We phoned 999, and they said, we'll send an ambulance. My stepdad grabbed Josh, put him in a cold bath, and was just th throwing cold water over him. 
The paramedics arrived, they, they got Josh uh, into a stretcher, and we set off in the back of an ambulance with sirens going and lights flashing, and I sat in that ambulance and felt hopeless. I was absolutely convinced that Josh had died and that Josh was not coming back from this. The paramedics tried to talk to him in the back of the ambulance. There was no response whatsoever. We drove through Edinburgh pretty quickly in that ambulance, and we got to the sick kids. They took him into casualty in the A&E in sick kids, and again, still, Josh was not responding. What broke the spell was when me, in that recovery room with Kathy and Josh, as they tried to work on Josh, were three words that told me everything was okay. In fact, it was four words. Thomas the Tank Engine. It wasn't a verse from Scripture. It wasn't a Bible verse. But it was when they said to Josh, because the, at that time in The Sick Kids, they had pictures of cartoons and storybook characters on the ceiling above the bed in Sick Kids. And when they said to Josh, what can you see above you? It was the words, Thomas the Tank Engine, that he had seen above his bed that I knew Josh had come back. Now, for those of you who are parents of young children, I don't want to phase you. But this is incredibly common. We learned over the course of that weekend that Josh had suffered what is called a febrile convulsion. And in a febrile convulsion, what the body does, does up to about the age of eight is that when the body gets too warm, because uh, it hasn't matured and grown physically, what the body does is completely shuts down internally. And actually, just to reassure you, this is incredibly common in children under the age of eight. And about 60% of children have these febrile convulsions. We had never heard of it. Nobody had ever told us. But I remember coming to church the next day and having conversations, even with some of you who are here today, and saying, you'll never guess what happened, describing what happened, and parent by parent by parent by parent saying, oh yeah, we had one of those. And Kathy and I are saying, why didn't you tell us? Why did nobody say that this is perfectly normal? But I will never forget those feelings of hopelessness that I had. Absolutely convinced in the back of that ambulance that Josh had died, that Josh was dead, and that there was no hope. In his book, Audacity of Hope, written as part of the build-up uh, to him becoming president of the U.S., Barack Obama wrote a book called The Audacity of Hope. And in it, he describes hope in this way. Hope, he says, is not blind optimism. It's not ignoring the enormity of the task ahead or the roadblocks that stand in our path. It's not sitting on the sidelines or shrinking from a fight. Hope is that thing inside us, despite all the evidence to the contrary, that something better awaits us if we have the courage to reach for it, work for it, and fight for it. Sometimes people have this idea about the Christian idea of hope, that it's blind faith. 
Or, if you like, in the words of Barack Obama, blind optimism. But actually, Obama is pretty close to biblical, a biblical idea of hope when he said it's not blind optimism. It's not ignoring the difficulties, not ignoring the roadblocks, but taking into account all that we are facing, still believing that something can get better, that something can get restored, that something can get renewed, that somehow things will improve. As you were thinking of that particular time when you felt hope less, perhaps also you are thinking just now of a situation that seems to you now hopeless. Again, there will be different ones for different ones of us. Some will seem incredibly serious. Actually, probably to us, all of them seem incredibly serious. To other people, they might appear trivial. But you can think of a situation perhaps now where you feel hopeless, where the problem seems too large, where the obstacles seem too big, where the difficulties seem insurmountable, where the personalities involved seem too complex, where just the idea of thinking that somehow things can get better is too challenging for you. It might be in a situation of grief or unemployment. Maybe you're thinking of a child that you want to come back to faith, perhaps. A child, perhaps, who is nowhere near God at the moment. Maybe it is hope for a positive health diagnosis. Maybe it's hope that despite a pessimistic health diagnosis, somehow things will get better. Maybe it's hope for a child. Maybe it's hope for a partner. Maybe it's hope for a peace for a nation, as Paul was encouraging us to pray a few moments ago. Maybe it's something as simple as hope for a job, for your economic prospects to improve. Maybe it's hope for a home. Maybe it's hope for a reconciliation with an old friend or a member of your family with whom things have become tricky and dislocated. Maybe listening to the news this morning, you simply hope that we have heating or food this winter because that is seeming a bit forlorn at the moment. Well, hope in the ancient world, in the world that Paul was writing in, was not seen as a virtue. Hope in the Greek world and in the Roman world was seen very much as a temporary illusion, this idea of almost blind optimism. And yet, according to the Apostle Paul, one of the three great things that remain are faith, hope, and love from 1 Corinthians. Those are the three things that remain, faith, hope, and love. And as Paul wrote those words to that church in Corinth, he was being countercultural, Because what Paul is saying is the hope that we have as Christians is not blind optimism, it's not a temporary illusion, but it's based and rooted and grounded in historical facts, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And hope occurs again and again in the Bible, 126 times apparently the word hope occurs in the Old and New Testaments. And God is referred to again and again as the God of hope. 
But the Christian hope, as I say, is not blind optimism. It doesn't ignore the facts of pain or suffering. Sometimes, again, Christians get this funny idea that in order to have a hope or a faith, you need to ignore what is going on around you. There was this idea around, when I was, when I was a student, uh, sometime in the last millennium, uh, in the last century, 40 years ago, uh, there was a group in our Christian union that got into a sort of very, very um, charismatic way of, of, of praying and, and uh, thinking about the Christian faith. And uh, in, in their mind's eye, you had to confess with your mouth positive things. You weren't allowed to express doubt or uh, unbelief or um, any sort of shade of, of, of uncertainty about your Christian faith. And if you spoke it out, then it would, it would happen. And if you didn't speak it out, then it didn't happen. And I remember bumping into a, a friend of mine called Tim, uh, who was the same year as me. We were in the second or the third year at the time. And I said, oh, hi, Tim. How are you doing? He said, I'm fine. And Tim came from Croydon, and he spoke with a sort of Cockney accent mainly, but he, he was all bugged up with cold. And I said, Tim, you sound dreadful. And he said, no, I'm absolutely fine. I said, really? Because you, you don't look great. I mean, you come from Croydon, so you don't look great, but, I mean, you're very pale, you've got red around your eyes, your nose is running, you, you're just a bit sweaty, you're a bit clammy, you don't look great. And he said, no, I'm absolutely fine. I said, Tim, it does sound as though you've got a cold. He said, no, I'm not believing for it. I said, pardon? He said, I'm not believing for it. I haven't got a cold. I've prayed that the Lord would take this cold away, and I haven't got a cold. That is bonkers Christian faith, okay? <laughs> if you tune in to God TV or TBN or any of these wacky channels, um, it's bunkum. That's the official theological word for it, it's bunkum. This idea that somehow if you profess with your mouth, things will come into being. That is not Christian hope. Christian hope does not ignore the basic facts of pain and suffering that in this world, things are not the way God meant them to be. There will be pain. There will be suffering. There is still disease and death and sadness and sickness because we're part of a fallen world. But what we do get are glimpses of the not yet kingdom. Shafts of light a bit. You see at this time of, of, of the year, you start to see on, on bits of the floor and on bits of the wall, you see this beautiful, you can see one on the balcony at the back there, the red and the blue as the sun comes onto the side of, of, of the wall. And it's like an insight as to what's outside, that the sun is shining. There's the promise of something better. And we get those shafts of light into this world, the here and now, that remind us that we do live in another kingdom and that we belong to a different kingdom, but that that kingdom is, is still not yet. Now, Christians disagree about the extent to which that not yet kingdom can be realized in the here and now. That's another talk for another time. But for the Apostle Paul, he was in no doubt. In, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 3, he says this, Suffering produces perseverance, which produces character, which then produces hope. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and then character produces hope. 
And it's this curious paradox that when we suffer, and we'll look at that in a moment, it somehow produces hope. And what we have are these two truths that Paul is trying to get across to this church in Colossae. And the first one is this idea of the hope of glory that you and I have. He says, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and what I fill up in my flesh, what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. He's not saying that the things he's suffering are adding to what Jesus suffered on the cross. What he's saying is that they're a consequence of belonging to Christ. He's not saying that there's something incomplete in what happened when Jesus died on the cross, that the NIV translation, when it refers to what's still lacking, isn't exactly accurate. It's more a sort of what's still to come, i.e. as a consequence of Jesus dying on the cross, and as a consequence of being a Christian, there will be suffering. Paul says, I rejoice in this suffering. Remember, he's writing uh, to this church from prison, probably in Rome, and he's saying, I rejoice in my suffering because I'm suffering for Christ, because I'm a Christian, because I've become a servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, this mystery that has been kept hidden for generations. And what he's referring to, this mystery, isn't the sort of idea of um, Gnosticism or the mystery religions that were around in the ancient world, but it's this idea that, that this mystery that's been, that's been hinted at all the way through the Old Testament is that now the Messiah has come, and not just the Messiah has come, but now through the presence and the power and the promise of the Holy Spirit, we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's the mystery that he's referring to at the end of chapter 1. See, the Christian faith is not about being nice and about being good and keeping rules and regulations and about being religious, that is not what the Christian faith is about. The Christian faith is about something fundamentally different. It's about Christ in you. Think about that. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work, Paul says, in us who believe. So the hope of glory that we have is not just a looking forward to heaven. That's somehow what people sometimes think about the hope of glory. They think it's about going to heaven when we die. That is part of it. And I talked to somebody four or five weeks ago who's, who's got a terminal prognosis. And genuinely, honestly, when I said to him, what, what, how are you feeling about this? He said, I'm just excited about going to heaven. Amazing testimony. He's not denying the reality of the difficulty of the prognosis. He's not denying the pain and the sadness that will be there for his family and for his friends and for everybody here who will be left behind. He's not denying that. But he's excited about going to heaven. Amazingly honest, profound demonstration of what it's part of what the hope of glory is. But the hope of glory is not just about pie in the sky when we die, as somebody says. It's about steak on a plate while we wait. It's about life here and now. The hope of glory 
is about the promise and the presence of the power of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, that same dunamis, that same dynamite power that raised Jesus from the dead, Christ is in you, Paul says to the church at Colossae, collectively and individually. The hope of glory is that Jesus lives in you. And that's the hope of glory. And the hope of glory is that a Hebrew, the word glory is a Hebrew word, kabod, and it, it has a sense of gravitas about it. It has this idea of the weight of the promise and the presence of God being with you. Now, if I'm honest, I've only experienced becoming consciously aware of this on a couple of occasions. I remember a few years ago, I was, I was writing a talk, and I was writing a talk on the glory of God. Now, you can say maybe it was auto-suggestion, but as I was writing this talk, I became aware or conscious of the presence of God in an unusual way in the room where I was writing the talk. And it was as though, I was, I was, this is how long ago it was, I was writing it with a pen. And I was writing the talk for my Philofax, again that dates me, and I couldn't physically lift my head up because I knew that the presence and the weight of the glory of God was just the other side of my desk. Now as I say, I've only ever experienced this once really in this way. But the presence and the power and the weight, the gravitas of God's glory was such that I couldn't physically lift my head up from the desk. And that is a bit of what Paul is talking about here when he talks about the hope of glory. It's about the presence of God with us. It's not to ignore the reality and the pain of suffering. Tom Wright puts it this way. He says, Just as the Messiah was known to be by the path of suffering that he freely chose, so his people are to be recognized by the suffering they endure. And Tom Wright is saying, if you're a Christian, you will suffer. It's in the job description. And in a profound way, it refines our character and refines our faith. Not always. But how we respond to suffering and how we respond to pain is part of the way that God works in our lives. He doesn't cause it, but he allows it to happen. But what sustains us and what keeps us going is this idea of the hope of glory, the presence of God, that God doesn't just sort of see us, as it were, commit our lives to Christ, become a Christian whenever that is and say, well, off you go, do your best, and I'll see you in 50, 60, 70 years' time. But God's promise is that his presence, his power, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, is actually inside us. And that is the hope of glory that you and I have, that transforms the way in which we see this world, and transforms the way in which we see ourselves, and transforms the way in which we see other people. So it means that Fleur can, can look at things like environmentalism and think, we can make a difference. We can make a change. We can see lives changed. We can see God at work in people's lives. 
because God is committed to working in our lives. And that's the idea behind the second idea, which very quickly we're going to go on to in verse 28, where Paul says that his aim is to present every person mature in Christ. That's his aim as an apostle, is to present every person fully mature in Christ. I've just started um, a part-time doctor of ministry in church planting, and I'm having to read a book uh, a week at the moment for this particular program over the next two or three years, so please pray. Uh, Pray for me. I haven't done any academic study for 30 years, uh, and I'm doing this part-time doctorate of ministry, and they gave us a book Uh, this week, which referred to the job of the pastor, which is people like Paul and Libby and myself, to be a resident moral theologian. And I have to tell you, everything within me recoiled from that description. The idea that somehow Paul and Libby and me, we are to be resident moral theologians, paints the idea of the clergy being like sort of religious police, going, ah, I wouldn't do that. No, God doesn't want you to do that. No, shouldn't be doing that. No, definitely not doing that. That's not what we're here for. Our job, together with the rest of the staff and actually our responsibility in the whole of the church is to present one another fully mature in Christ, that we might become more and more like Jesus. The word mature is the word teleos. It means perfect, complete, whole, without blemish, fully grown. And the idea is that each day, each week, each month, each year, you and I should be becoming more like Jesus, the fruit of the Holy Spirit from Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, being formed more fully at work within us. So that every day you should be, I should be more like Jesus this week than we were last week, than we were last month, than we were a year ago. And the job of the church And it's not just those of us who are paid to pray and preach. It's everybody taking responsibility for one another's growth and also for our own growth is that we're aiming to present each other fully mature in Christ. That's why we bang on about whole life discipleship. Because we want you and I want me to become more like Jesus. And Paul says, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works within me, verse 29. Do you want a picture of what it means to to strenuously contend with all the power that God works within me? Look at the screen. And the next slide, please, in the words of Professor Witte. That is what it means to contend strenuously with all the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. The word contend is is a picture from athleticism. It's a picture from um, at the Olympics. It's a picture from the games. Paul is saying, I've got this power at work within me, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power that rose Jesus from the dead, the, the power of God at work within me and at work within you, But if this is going to happen, I need to play ball. So it's not let go and let the Holy Spirit. 
It's not, just make me more like Jesus, Lord, and do nothing. Paul says, I strenuously contend with all the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. We have a part to play. You don't see the Brownlee brothers on the start line going, well, okay. They have to actually start to put one foot in front of the other. They have to do their bit. We have to do our bit. It might be going on Bible lab. It might be uh, going, joining a connect group. It might be starting a, a rule of life and reading the Bible every day. It might be getting a mentor. It might be joining a prayer triplet. It might be going on Alpha. But we have to do our bit alongside the power of Christ, Paul says, that works so powerfully within me. And finally, there's this picture from the Bayer Tapestry, which I've spoken about before. And in fact, I have to confess to you, I've got it wrong. In the past, I've said it was a picture of uh, King William comforts his troop. It's even worse than that. What it actually says above is, hic odo eos bacios thing. The guy in the middle, guess what his job is? He's a bishop. And he's encouraging his troops by hitting them with a stick. And that's a picture of what the Holy Spirit does. When Jesus says he's, he's the comforter, come fortis, he strengthens, that is a picture of what it means to comfort. It means that sometimes the Holy Spirit lovingly, but firmly and clearly starts to prod us. We think of the comforter as the Holy Spirit coming and going, oh, there, there. He's a counselor. Do you? How do you feel about that? I feel the same. That's not that a picture of the comforter. And for some of us today, we need to simply get back onto doing what we need to do. We know what we need to do as Christians. Maybe the last 18 months, is like me, you've, your, your routine has been completely thrown. And this is a wake-up call for you. You need to start to strenuously contend with all the power that so powerfully works inside you. You need to do your bit. God will do his. But we need to play our part. And maybe this morning, as you receive the bread and the wine, it's a moment for you to say, okay, God, I recognize that you've done your bit, and I start to need to do mine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your power so powerfully works inside us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to do our part, that the fruit, the character of Jesus, might be formed more fully in us. Lord, where we need to start or restart a habit that we have let slip, give us the self-discipline and the self-control to get stuck in and to make that first step. Where, Lord, some of us need that refreshment and renewal of hope then we're asking, Holy Spirit, for you to pour your hope into us today. That you would help us to, to become aware of the possibilities that you enable as your power is at work within us. Lord, for some of us who have given up, would you help us to reconnect and to open ourselves up afresh again to you? So wherever we are this morning, Lord, would you speak to us and would you continue your work amongst us? In Jesus' name, amen.